Today's scripture reading comes from Luke 9. Um, Let us pray before we read. Loving God, open our hearts and minds that the scripture that we read today and your word proclaim, may we hear with joy and love that we may go forth as your humble servants. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as these men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The word of the Lord. In the Epiphany season, we've been investigating Jesus by considering the relationships that he had with people in the Gospels. We've seen that he interacted with a dramatic diversity of different kinds of people. Men, women, would it help if I pulled this back a little bit? No? All right. Uh, We've seen that he interacted with such a dramatic diversity of different kinds of people. Men, women, rich, poor, religious, irreligious. And in all of these encounters, uh, we've noticed that people often came to some recognition of both Jesus' uh, his authority uh, in his claims and in his actions, and his grace, uh, in his mercy and his, his kindness. As I said last week, Jesus challenged people and he comforted people, often at the same time with the same person. And it's this combination that is so unusual. If Jesus only challenged us with authority, we wouldn't want to go to him. He would be too intimidating. But if he only ever showed comfort and never challenged, uh, he would be superficial. But in Jesus, we find both these qualities perfectly combined. And we find something similar in our text today in this account of the transfiguration from Luke 9. In verse 33, Peter says to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Peter's words echo the the declaration of God in in Genesis 1, and and God saw that it was good. Uh, Peter recognizes that he and James and John have been ushered into a divine reality that satisfies their their deepest longings, and he's ready to make these tents for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah so they can stay a long time in that place. It is good that we are here. 
This is an expression of, of joy and gladness in Jesus' presence. But then, just a few moments later, when the cloud comes and overshadows them, the text says they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And this fear is, is the biblical fear of, of reverence and awe. So, so here, in this experience of the disciples, we see both joy and awe, delight and reverence. And it's, it's this combination that makes Christian experience so unusual and, and powerful. So today, we want to explore the source of this experience in the transfiguration. And there are three dimensions of the transfiguration that I, I want you to see today. There's a horizontal dimension, there's a vertical dimension, and there's an internal dimension. Let me explain. What I mean by a, a horizontal dimension is that there are these historical accounts, or histor historical connections in this account that connects Jesus to the whole story of Israel in the Old Testament. And this is most obvious in the appearance of Moses and Elijah on the mountain with Jesus. On the one hand, this is very strange to finally, suddenly find, you know, these two men, uh, Moses and Elijah, they're talking with Jesus. There's, there's a lot of mystery here, and we're going to come back to that mystery in a few minutes. But the basic point, I think, is not hard to get, that, that Moses and Elijah represent key moments in the history of redemption. Moses represents the law, the Torah, that he received on Mount Sinai in God's presence. And Elijah represents the prophetic tradition. And he also ascended Mount Sinai, where he heard uh, God in, in, a, in a still, small voice. And both Moses and Elijah point ahead, pointed ahead to a Messiah who would come in the future who would bring a greater and fuller redemption to the world. Moses promised in Deuteronomy 18 that the Lord would one day raise up a prophet like himself. And the prophet Malachi promised that Elijah would appear before the great day of the Lord. So for Jesus to appear here, standing alongside Moses and Elijah, is like the ultimate endorsement of his messianic identity, stretching back into the Old Testament. But, but the horizontal dimension that we find here doesn't just go backwards. It also goes forwards. We're told in verse 30 that Moses and Elijah were having a conversation with Jesus. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word that is used here in Greek for uh, departure is, is a Greek word you will all know. It's the Greek word exodus. It's so fitting that our kids were singing about the exodus this morning. As Moses and Elijah spoke with Jesus, they spoke of his departure, his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What does this mean? Why is this significant? Well, they're looking both backwards and forwards. They're looking forwards to Jesus' death on the cross, which is what he will accomplish in, in Jerusalem. But by calling it his exodus, they're looking back 
to the great redemptive act of God in the Old Testament, the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. Just as God freed his people from slavery to Pharaoh in the person and work of Jesus, God is accomplishing an even greater exodus, delivering his people from slavery to sin and death. So what this shows us is that Jesus is not just connected to the history of Israel. He's the fulfillment of it. In his person and work, the transfiguration announces that the Bible's history is coming to its culmination. So to see Jesus in this, in this horizontal dimension is to see him as a part of this grand story. And the identity of Christians, then, as his disciples, are people who have been drawn into that larger story. When you believe that you are a part of this larger cosmic story, it has the power to, to help you to think about your own story in all sorts of new ways. As the theologian N.T. Wright has written, when we learn to read the story of Jesus and see it as the story of the love of God, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, that insight produces again and again a sense of astonished gratitude, which is very near the heart of authentic Christian experience. So that's, that's the horizontal, but there's also a vertical dimension here. And on that reflections page in the bulletin, I put the, the poem that uh, Jeff pointed us to at the beginning of the service about the, the Transfiguration by Malcolm Guyton. And I'm, I'm going to leave it for you to read again the whole thing uh, later. Uh, but there's a line in the poem that I think is very powerful uh, that Jeff read. In, in, in the second line, uh, Guyton describes the Mount of Transfiguration as that one mountain where all moments meet. That one mountain where all moments meet. In, in a commentary on the poem, Guide says that this line was inspired by thinking about how Moses and Elijah each had their own mountaintop experience of God, as, as I mentioned earlier. They both had actually a vision of God on Mount Sinai. But Guide says that instead of imagining that Moses and Elijah are somehow revisiting this world, like they left and now they're coming back here to meet with Jesus, Guide says that he began to imagine that the disciples were witnessing the truth that in the light of heaven, in heaven's time, as it were, those three separate moments, Moses on his mountain in his time, Elijah in his and Christ in this gospel moment were all one moment. What, I came, what came to mind as I, uh, as I thought about this idea was the experience that some of us had last fall with Cal and Ruth DeWitt at their annual bonfire uh, where Cal led one of his traditional nature walks uh, through the marsh. But this time he brought with him this device, uh, someone can tell me what it's called later, I forget, uh, that he uses to, to study layers of soil. And as an environmental scientist, Cal uses this instrument to take core samples that allow you to see the different layers of peat in the marsh. And if you go down deep enough, it's like going back in time, hundreds or even thousands 
of years. I think Jim Bockheim has done something similar in Antarctica, if I'm correct. You can ask him about that, yes. He says yes. So <laughs> talk to him about doing it in Antarctica after the service. Um, but uh, it's, it came to mind because it reveals a vertical dimension of history. Not just a historical connection, but as if all these are intersecting times. Malcolm Guide says, if Moses and Elijah saw the face of God in a mystery, then it could be none other than the face of Christ. But just as we saw that the, the horizontal dimension goes backwards and forwards from the Exodus to the cross, the vertical dimension also goes in two directions. It goes down like a core sample to these other mountaintop moments, but it also goes up to heaven itself into the very presence of God. And this is what so much of the symbolism and the language here is meant to show us, especially as Luke describes it. When Luke says, the appearance of Jesus' face was altered in verse 29. The word that he uses for appearance is, is very rare in the New Testament, but in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used to describe the tabernacle, the, the dwelling place of God. It's also used to describe the, the appearance of the glory of God in Exodus 24, 17, which says, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of all the people. And, and there's other divine heavenly imagery here. The robes of angels are, are often bright white, but notice that Luke describes Jesus' clothing as dazzling white. This is a word that's used often to describe lightning in the Bible, but in the prophetic book of Ezekiel, it's used to describe Ezekiel's dramatic vision of God in Ezekiel chapter 1. You see how, uh, for someone who is familiar with this language and this imagery, uh, you're meant to conclude that as the disciples stand in the presence of Jesus, they are standing in the very presence of God. The light of Jesus' face is the divine light of God. And this all comes to a climax uh, with the cloud. Verse 34. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Uh, this cloud also points us to Moses going up Mount Sinai. Uh, he also brought with him three disciples, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. And Moses ascended to its highest peak in, after six days, and, and this, then the same bright cloud appeared. Exodus 24, 16. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, God called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. This is the, the Shekinah glory cloud of God that also fills the tabernacle and the temple. It's the cloud that veils and unveils the presence of the Lord. 
And when the disciples hear God speak from the cloud, uh, his voice brings a final confirmation about Jesus' identity. Uh, he affirms three things. First, he, he affirms Jesus' identity as God's son, his, his unique relationship with God. Second, he affirms not just the uniqueness of Jesus' identity, but the character of the relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus is his chosen one, which is an, an affirmation of his, his messianic role. And in the other transfiguration accounts, in, in Matthew and, and Mark, he's called the beloved Son. And third, the Father affirms Jesus' mission. He says, listen to him. In other words, Jesus reveals God's purposes to the world. He should be listened to. In the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 17, in Jesus' great high priestly prayer, we hear, uh, hear him express uh, the same idea uh, when he prays, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let me say two things about what all of this, this means. First, you see how the transfiguration and how Jesus prays in John 17 reveals to us something of God's Trinitarian life. God is fully present on the Mount of Transfiguration as he was on Mount Sinai. But now we see a distinction between the Father and the Son. And the, and the, the Father's relationship with the, with the Son is one of a, a loving, affirming embrace. St. Augustine says that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is that love between the Father and the Son. And second, we learn that the mission of Jesus is to make the love of the Father known to the world. Listen to him. And this is so that the love with which the Father has loved the Son may be in us. So now, if you take all of this into account and in, in what it says about the presence of God uh, here on this mountain, you can understand why. On the one hand, Peter would say, it is good that we are here, and the, on the other hand, they would be trembling with fear. They weren't watching all of this from a, a comfortable distance. It says that a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. At Mount Sinai, uh, the cloud overshadowed a place, the, the tabernacle. In, in the New Testament, the same word, this word overshadowed, is used in Luke 1, uh, when the angel Gabriel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Uh, God's presence overshadows for Mary not a place, but, but her person. But when the cloud appears in Luke 9, it overshadows them. Jesus and his disciples. What does this mean? It means that the transfiguration is not just about what happens to Jesus. It doesn't only show us that Jesus is God. It also shows us what happens to those 
who are in the presence of God with Jesus. And this is my final point. This is the internal dimension. The gospel tells us that if you belong to Jesus, then God's presence is with you and in you. The Father speaks the same words of affirmation that we hear him speak to his own son, to you. We, we heard this declaration earlier in the service in our, our words of assurance from Galatians 4. Uh, listen to them again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In Christ, you're given an identity as God's child and the assurance of the Father's love. You're given a calling to participate in the Holy Trinity's own mission to bring God's love to the world. The invitation of the Christian life is to enter more deeply into this reality every day, to be transfigured by God's love. How does this happen? Well, the word transfigure or transform, it's, it's the same word in Greek, is used only three times in the New Testament. Once in the transfiguration accounts, and then in Romans 12, verse 2, when Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, transfigured by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then finally, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, transfigured, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What Paul is saying is that what happened to Jesus is happening to you as you behold the glory of the Lord in Jesus. You are being transformed into his image. As Jesus teaches, this doesn't happen automatically, apart from suffering and, and cross-bearing. It means trusting in this gospel truth every day and then following him in the details of your life. He never says that it will be easy. But whatever difficult things that come into your life, God promises to use them so that you might reflect more of the suffering, self-sacrificial love that is at the heart of God, the agape love of God that Kyle shared with us last night. And he, and he ended last night with a wonderful quote from C.S. Lewis about that agape love. And I'd like to leave you with another quote from C.S. Lewis this morning. Uh, in his famous sermon, the, the Weight of Glory, Lewis talks about how extraordinary it is that every single person we meet is meant to reflect uh, the glory of God. And let me end with this quote. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, 
all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals that we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Friends, as we learn to receive the love of God in Christ, to love him in return with thanksgiving, and to love one another and our neighbors, we are being transformed, transfigured. It is good that we are here. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your Son. We stand in awe before your glory and your grace. Would you help us to see you more and more clearly and then to follow you in humble service to each other and to the world? May we love as you love and give as you give and serve as you serve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.